Thanks for listening to episode number 184 of the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm your host, Sean Devine. Today's episode is another cross-post of an interview of me on another podcast. I was invited onto the Descriptive podcast with Khalil Leckelt to talk about a variety of topics. The feedback on the last cross-posted episode was pretty good, and I enjoyed this interview too, so I decided to share it here. The sponsors for today's episode are Codeship and Thinkful. I'll tell you a bit more about them later in the episode. I hope that you enjoy it. I'll be back with a brand new Ruby on Rails podcast next week. Welcome to Descriptive, a podcast about JavaScript and other things. I'm your host, Khalil, and this is episode 11. I probably wrote 70 tests today or something. Today's guest is Sean Devine. He is a Ruby programmer, an entrepreneur, and the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast. Welcome to the show, Sean. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Sean. <laughs> well, at least that makes it better when I screw up your name, Cleo. So, <laughs> uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, well, um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, so my first question um, always is, how did you get into programming? I got into programming pretty late. So, I mean, it depends on how you um, describe the start. But I, I didn't start programming professionally until I was in my 30s somewhere. Um, I uh, I went to school uh, for finance and entrepreneurship. So I, I went to a, a small college called Babson College. And I hadn't really programmed much as a kid. I mean, maybe a little bit tinkering with a Commodore 64 that my parents got me, but not all that much. And in college, I, aside from Excel, which I, uh, I think was a pretty good programmer with, um, didn't program at all really until, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe when I was about 32. And the reason that I got into it was I uh, started a, a new company and we had ambitious ideas about what kind of... Uh, business we wanted to run and uh, found out that we couldn't buy the software that could do what we were looking to do. So I, uh, being stubborn and, and maybe a little bit full of it, uh, decided that I would learn how. And that was, I don't know, four years ago. And uh, so between then and now, I think I went from being a, a hack, maybe, you know, maybe less than a hack to, uh, to not so bad now. Wow. So that's, that's, that is pretty recent. So, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're older. Cause I think I like to think that things don't slow down, but I think maybe they do a little bit. So, uh, you know, picking things up that late, I think from my conversations with other people is, is maybe a little bit different and, uh, maybe came with some advantages, but also, uh, you know, maybe made it a little bit harder. Mm. And, um, so did you get right into Ruby, uh, Ruby and rails or did you start somewhere else? Yeah, I, I, I'd say that the first programming language that I, that I knew, um, at all was visual basic for applications. So VBA mm -hmm. and I, I, I wasn't all that good at VBA, but I, I could, I could get around. Okay. And like I said, I was, a, well, I still am pretty good at Excel. And, uh, the reason I got into VBA was, was just building on top of the models that we had built in Excel for various purposes, mostly, analysis purposes, but, but some things that were a little bit more interesting than that. So I'd say that was the first language. The second language was actually, um, the, the sort of Java subset that salesforce.com offers called apex. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that, but never. It, 
Yeah, if you want to extend the Salesforce.com platform, they have a language called Apex that you use. And it's really Java, um, kind of a, a subset of Java that executes inside of their environment. That was the first language that I learned how to write that I was any good at whatsoever. And I don't think I was great at that, but I was okay. And then after that, and, and those two were in quick succession. After that, I picked up Ruby and, and Ruby on Rails. And why did you do that? Well, you know, mainly because so I guess two reasons. One, I, I like Ruby. I, I still feel the same way about it. I, I kind of have the same feeling about Ruby that people, that other people that love Ruby have, which is that it just is a pleasure to write. It makes sense to me. I think that the, the sort of combination of object orientation and, and, uh, but, but some functional features with a syntax that looks right. Like it just all works for me. I like that you can, I like the metaprogramming opportunities. I like that you're not, yeah, I think you can get yourself in trouble there too, but I like that it lets you do what you want. So, you know, I like Ruby. Um, I, w- I just want to ask, um, how did you find out about Ru- Ruby? Because, um, so, because basically you're saying you, you like, you got into Ruby on Rails because you like Ruby, but you were working with other languages before? A little bit. I mean, I think that I, I didn't really know much at the time when I was learning. So I, I take, took a look at a bunch of things. So you okay. know, some, some JavaScript, some, like I said, VBA and Apex and, and Excel and, and, uh, and I, I was looking to build, I think, a, a web scraping application as the very first thing. And it may, I don't really recall how I found Ruby, but it may have been that I, um, found a tutorial for, for doing web scraping in Ruby and, and liked it better than the tutorials that I found for other languages. I don't really know, mm-hmm. but something about it clicked right away. Um, it made sense to me. I liked writing it. Um, and, uh, you know, rails, I think took away a lot of the things that I don't like about programming even still. So I, I, uh, I like the convention over configuration approach of rails. I like that, um, a smart group of people have made thoughtful choices about conventions so I can dig right into the domain, um, you know, the domain programming that I'm really interested in. So I guess that's why, but you know, it may also be because it's the one that I met first, right? Like, uh, uh, of the, of the big open source languages. I guess that's the other thing I'd say is that I, it became pretty clear to me early that I had a preference for open source. So, um, I think that excluded, you know, options like, um, Objective C and in the Apple ecosystem and probably .NET too. It just um, you know isn't isn't my thing. Hmm. And um, yeah, so it seems like this seems to be um, really a very common um, sentiment that Ruby on Rails and Ruby programmers really like just enjoy the language um, for. I guess it's beauty and how it's how you can write it and how readable it is and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> uh, that's very interesting to me because I, I I'm I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of drawn to that, but I I never, whenever I was kind of uh, I kind of came up learning Java in school and then had to do. PHP and then and then kind of went on to do JavaScript and whenever I was doing PHP I was I was kind of uh, looking towards the Ruby and Ruby on Rails community and was kind of jealous. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to be jealous of. You know, I think it. I think the testing 
culture is really good. I think that the the there's a library for just about everything. And and while people can get a little bit snarky about about using you know libraries they call them gems in ruby you know i think that they're they're actually quite wonderful i mean both in terms of the functionality that they give you and in terms of your ability to learn from them by you know popping open the hood and checking out how other people are doing things yeah so it's i mean i uh, i've i've mentioned a lot on my show that i've started to program more javascript recently so it's not that i'm only about ruby and i'm i'm fine with other things too but it definitely is my favorite if i had a choice to if i could write ruby for everything i think that uh i probably would <laughs> okay uh so what did you end up doing do are you working for a company or are you working uh, as a freelancer well i've done i've done various things so i before i learned how to program i um had uh i guess you'd call them executive jobs in in fortune 500 companies here in the u.s mm-hmm. uh, mostly in transportation so i was um head of strategy for a big uh transportation company i was head of pricing and engineering for another big transportation company so my background's a little bit different than i think most programmers and that it's on the sort of leadership and finance and strategy side mm-hmm. with, with a little bit of applied science I back about five years ago, I started uh, a company and then a couple companies with a, a guy that I had previously worked um, with. Um, it was a, a, a transportation brokerage, so a freight brokerage, as in if you were shipping freight from point A to point B um, in a truckload, we automated the brokerage of that. And uh, you know that company was an interesting ride and and did pretty well. And we've we've since. Uh, sold part of it and and uh, partnered up with someone on on another part. So I, I I sort of split my time between some companies that I've started over the last five years and uh, some new projects. Oh, cool. And those uh, so did you write the the or were you uh, also writing those apps the apps for those companies? Um, well, yeah, I mean I had teams, so I didn't write all of it, but mm-hmm. I I wrote the majority of the transportation management system for. Um, the company that I mentioned, which is called Partage. Um, so that included kind of all of the nuts and bolts of how to move move freight. So things like describing the load and rating the load and managing the operation of the freight moving from here to there, all the sort of boring, how do you get, how do you get, how do you manage the transportation of things stuff, as well as a, a sort of cost estimation and pricing engine that was a little bit more on the analytic side with the with some programming thrown in to, to wrap around the, the, uh, algorithms. And then, you know, I don't know, all sorts of spinoff applications on those to just help the companies run. And I, I wrote, I don't know, I wrote most of them, you know, maybe 60, 70% of the apps that we, that we created over those four years. Oh, cool. And, um, so, so you said you sold part, part of the company. Yeah. We sold the technology from the companies to, a a large transportation company. So I, uh, I'm spending most of my time now working on that. So working with the company that we sold the technology to and, uh-huh. and sort of building the next generation of the, those applications. That's mostly what I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but some other things too. So I, I try to split my time between programming, which I still do a lot. I probably program 30, I don't know, 30 some hours a week and then business stuff the rest of the time. So, you know, finding opportunities to apply technology to, to business problems that I find interesting. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so 
so basically I got into um I got into your podcast um uh, by chance kind of because because um somebody on my show recommended um the Ruby Rogues po podcast do you know of that podcast Oh yeah yeah I, I haven't listened to it in a bit but I used to listen to it Yeah it's a pretty good uh, podcast and he recommended it for just you know for anybody who's interested in programming because they have interesting um discussions about programming and then um I I enjoyed it and I I knew about your podcast as well because I was lis listening to a lot of podcasts on the Five by Five network, and mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and I saw uh, I saw the Ruby on Rails podcast, so I checked it out and listened to a few episodes. And that was actually just recently. So um, that was when you started talking about um, getting into Ember, and you had some guests talking about Ember on the podcast. So so that was kind of interesting to me because I'm very interested in, in JavaScript framework. So how so when did you When did you start with Ember? And did you ever did you look at other frameworks um, as well? Yeah, so I I started working with Ember probably not that long ago. So three months ago, in any sort of interesting way. Now I had poked around a bit before that, so it wasn't like that was the first time I I looked at it. But that was the first time I started working with it. Um, I back on the question of did I look at other frameworks? So. I, I think that the real answer to that's probably no, you know. So, and I and I don't mean that literally. So, of course, I I was familiar a little bit with Backbone and had uh, done done a little bit of work to understand Angular. I'd say I did not do any research on React, um, and then then some on on some other things. I had a I'd say preference going in for the pitch of Ember for two reasons. One, I like the team behind Ember quite a bit. I like that it's not backed by a big company. Um, that's my preference actually by quite a, quite a large margin. Mm -hmm. And I also like that it is a full framework, not just a, a sort of um, framework for it, It's a full application framework, not just a framework for components within an application. Um, I liked that and it was the, I think the, the, the JavaScript framework that was most focused on being a complete framework on the front end. Um, and I, I think the last re, uh, thing that I liked about it is that the um, Ember CLI was sort of maturing at about the time that I started to look at it, or it probably matured pr prior to that, but it was, you know, starting to be featured in the tutorials and, and uh, given first class treatment by the Ember um, community. And I really like getting into JavaScript, uh, frameworks was already different enough for me. The idea of tackling the sort of the build tooling would have really turned me off from, um, from what I wanted to do, which is actually work on the applications. So I think it was the combination of those things, the, the sort of vision for a full front end framework, the team behind it, the fact that it wasn't connected to a big company and the build tooling that was integrated first class that I, that I found interesting. But I also think it'd be fair to say that I didn't I didn't really do a great job of comparing it to other things aside from reading comparisons, mm -hmm. but, but I kind of, I, mean, I kind of, um, delegated that a little bit for better or worse. Yeah. yeah how, how about you? What do you work with? Oh, um, that's a good question. I, I'm looking, I'm looking at a lot of different frame, frameworks. Um, I end up working, um, with angular often, quite often because it is it is so popular um now also with clients um 
companies that want stuff done with JavaScript, they kind of, uh, for some reason, so basically I think that stems a little bit from the time that is maybe like a, a year ago or so, a little, a little longer, where Angular had a big hype and Ember wasn't quite ready yet. Mm-hmm. And um, the developers loved Ember a lot because it, it was product. You were very productive right from the start. And, um, but that has kind of mellowed out a little bit now, I think, um, with a lot of people. Um, and there's, you know, but, but that developer hype always kind of seems to reach the clients a year later or so. So now they right. kind of, they set that technology for, for, for their apps and stuff like that. So I've been, um, I've been working with Angular um, private for my private projects. I've been looking at um, um, ampersand JS, which which I like, <clears throat> which is basically. Do, do you know of uh, ampersand? I don't. Okay, so that's um, it's it's a really nice framework which um, is by the company and yet they've been working with Backbone um, a lot, and then they wrote their own. Uh, like versions of views and models for Backbone, and they kind of made their own composable little framework out of that, which is which is pretty cool. And it's all um, basically built so you can um, use Node modules to build it, or it's it's all an npm, and you build it with Browserify. And um, and I've been also looking. I've also built like a little test project with Ember because I really like I really um, like a lot, lot of the same things that you mentioned about Ember. I like that it is it has a good structure, gives you a specific way to work with it. It's uh, which I, I like that because I like when when you basically keep in mind that you know big teams could work with those things and. Uh, and that makes it easy for teams to work together and to to onboard people, and and I. So what's really impress, impressive to me also is the is the community and the tooling that that they built around Ember and the website they made and documentation that is beautiful and there's a lot of um, yeah especially the 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 big op- opponent uh, Angular has a lot of um, there's a lot of still lacking a lot, a lot still lacking on that side i find in comparison yeah and i i mean i don't have anything against angular but I, if even if they were dead even i would go ember because i i just don't love being tied to to, to google not google specifically i'm fine with google as a company i suppose but um just being tied to a big company, you know, that, that mm-hmm. I, I really like that part of the Ember community that, you know, there are a handful of companies involved, but it's certainly not dominated by company. And even if it was dominated by Tilda, the, the company that Yehuda and Tom, um, run, I mean, that's a tiny little company. So it's not like, it's not like the same as Google's dominance over, over Angular. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I also, I like that very much. It's, uh, it seems with the Angular team and the big company behind it, it really seems like they they are basically calling the shots, and it's it's not so clear where it's going to go. And with Ember, it's all very transparent, and it's and it's out there in the open. Um, so, so when did you kind of switch to being interested in in a, a JavaScript heavy front end for your apps? Well, yeah, so I. 
uh, I did not switch to being interested in JavaScript because I'm interested in JavaScript. Actually, I uh, about, about I'd say two years ago, I became I started to become quite interested in having the server application only be a server, you know, a backend. Mm-hmm. And it felt off to me to have the same application that was rendering um, the you know the HTML and CSS, call it the the web client be the application that that was the 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 back end also and you know i had apis being offered out both for internal use and for trading partners you know for companies that we do business with and inevitably they don't support exactly the same thing right because if you think of your api as like the public api for the application and and then look at what my server rendered web client was using, it wasn't using that API. It was using, you know, I think what you could call the private API. It would just directly connect to the models through the controller. Mm-hmm. And that just felt so off to me. Like, like it felt like there was so much option value that was destroyed in that design because I would, you know, build something interesting that then was exposed to my own web client that was server rendered. But given that it, it, uh, wasn't going through the the public API like the JSON API of the application, then other people couldn't build on top of it, right? Like my customers or suppliers or um, myself, even with other applications. So I really started to dislike that design, the idea that the the, the I was server rendering the web client instead of having like a separation of the duties and having a the actual kind of brains of the entire application suite just expose itself via a JSON API or something similar and then have the clients consume it however they want to. Um, I didn't like that my own web client wasn't sort of the same in terms of how it interacted with the application as all the other clients. Because there, there, you know, every every few months there was another client that was using the application. Mm-hmm. So, so I got pretty interested in that idea. Like how do I move to a place where every client is first class, not like really first class, which is my own server rendered web client, and then sort of second class, which is everything else. So, um, but, but I didn't really figure out what to do about that, except I started to think about the APIs first, the, the public APIs, like the JSON API first. Mm-hmm. And I started to get more familiar with other people's thinking about that approach. So I started to, this is maybe a year ago, get interested in the JSON API project. Cause I, um, you know, really saw the need to have a standard around how you formed that API so that clients and libraries could count on it and started to experiment myself with, with various things. And then last year decided that I wanted to take a crack at having a complete separation of called the web client and the server side of an application um, near the end of 2014. So I took a small application and, and went, uh, Rails and Ruby on the server side and only, you know, didn't have a, a HTML, a web client rendered at all from the server and instead used Ember as the front end and um, was totally sold. Like, I think it's a little, you know, it took a little, or still taking a little bit of getting used to because some things take a little bit um, of a learning curve to get through that I would, because I'm not as good at, uh, with Ember yet as I am with Rails and I'm not as good in JavaScript as I am with Ruby. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the idea that there should be a separation of the server application from all of your clients, including the web client, I, I, I almost can't imagine myself going back on that now. It seems that clear to me that that's the right strategy. 
Let me tell you a bit about our first sponsor today, Thinkful. Would you like to learn how to program Ruby on Rails with a mentor? Thinkful could be a great solution for you. Thinkful helps you learn how to program full-stack web applications and host them on Heroku. You'll understand the architecture of Rails applications and gain the skills needed to build a minimum viable product. Now, there are some number of options for uh, uh, online learning and, and uh, uh, programming boot camps, so let me tell you a little bit about what makes Thinkful special. Thinkful classes are online and can be accessed from anywhere in the world. On their path toward becoming a developer, every student gets mentorship from a professional developer and joins an active community of learners. Gain access to step-by-step guidance and achieve your learning goals. Here are a few of the features that I think are are pretty unique uh, right from their website. You get weekly mentor sessions held via Google Hangouts, so it's not just typing at your computer, but you can uh, uh, talk to your mentor uh, live and, and see their smiling face. You get a curriculum with clear structure and built-in guidance. You have daily access to mentors through open office hours. And the projects that are part of the curriculum are designed to help you build your portfolio. If all that sounds interesting, check out Thinkful for more information at thinkful.com slash Rails podcast. And a good thing for everyone listening is you get 10% off. So go to thinkful.com slash Rails podcast or follow the link on the uh, the podcast webpage. Okay, so what was the what was the thing that sold you in the end? Like, was it the performance or what was it? Yeah, I told this story in another podcast, but I'll I'll uh, repeat it. I do like the performance. So there are a bunch of things that I like, but but the thing that sold me in particular was just the upside that. Like there are all the things that you don't know you're going to want to do, like integrations with other systems or with other companies or, um, and if you make, uh, if you go API first in your development strategy, then those opportunities come out of the woodwork, mm-hmm. right? Because you've got that capability. Whereas if you didn't go that way, if you went server rendered web clients, well, then you won't see those opportunities because you know, you're, it's not, you're not capable of those same things. So it's really, once I saw all of the opportunity that came from going API first, I just can't go back because I don't want to destroy all that option value. It's like the story that I've told elsewhere is that it's like when I told, uh, when we sat down with our uh, oldest kid who went to college this year and talked to her about, you know, her number one goal for college, her freshman year is just to keep her options open, right? Like don't, don't. Uh, paint yourself in a corner. And I kind of feel like server rendered web applications are like painting yourself into a corner. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that, you know, and now that I've seen the, the opportunity that the opportunities are at least as good as I hoped, if you go API first, I just can't turn around. Now, what you said is true. So there are many little, not little things, but many uh, more specific things that I find compelling. Like I love the res- the yeah, responsiveness has been co-opted. So I, I like the snappiness of the front end. That's great. I love that you can respond to all sorts of events, not just the CRUD events that you think about with server rendered web apps. Um, I uh, like that the applications therefore feel alive since you can respond to so many different types of events that the user has. Um, I like the development approach that 
um, you don't need to hook up to the server to, to work on the front end that you can develop it as a separate application and that they can kind of live on their own. I like that a lot, actually. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, the list of, I mean, once you've got that separation, I think the things you can do is just great. And I, I'd say I'm still more of a fan of, of going API first and having the separation of client and server than I am a fan specifically of JavaScript frameworks. Um, but I don't dislike them. I think they're fine. And I, I think that Ember is, is very well done. Hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense to me, uh, especially the uh, API first kind of uh, approach. That sounds really, yeah, it's just, it's just very, it's just a uh, very logical. It's, it's it, when you think about it, it's, it's kind of, it feels kind of weird that people didn't do it like that. And, uh, just to begin with (laughs) i i totally agree i mean i sort of feel like it almost like i do with with test-driven development so like i'm not i wouldn't call myself a zealot about really anything and and not tdd either but um but man once you get good at it and like once that's the way that you write code and i also i tend to write applications by myself not exclusively by myself but i tend to do a lot of work somewhat independently and to not have a test suite, like I remember I, I built a couple big applications without going test uh, test driven. And now when I look back, I'm like, how the hell did I even get by? I, I, like, I almost can't imagine what I did. I can't imagine the bugs. I can't imagine my own sanity. Like, you know, at least with the test driven, you've got like you're talking to yourself all day, which maybe that sounds insane. But it's you know, there's a back and forth, right? You write the test. It's like you get to converse with your own your own creativity and logic to try to figure out what you're supposed to do and then solve the little problem you created for yourself. And then, and then once you've been doing that, like you can't remember how it was without that. I sort of feel the same way about API driven that if you go API first and then all of a sudden look back at all the applications that I, that you wrote, it kind of feels like I feel when I look back at apps that I wrote without tests, it just feels off. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you write tests for JavaScript as well? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) I, I will. Uh, I, w- I am determined um, in the next three months to feel at least sort of as comfortable in that as I do in Ruby. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I find a little bit difficult is that my proficiency with Ruby um, uh, in general is pretty high and and certainly with testing is too. And it's like I don't have to think much about it. Like I, I just... I know that no matter what I'm going to build, I can, you know, start with the tests and, and it's like a security blanket that, you know, makes me know that I can build something tricky. Well, my JavaScript script um, skills aren't good enough. Um, and my knowledge of the frameworks really even forget JavaScript itself, but the, the test runners and frameworks just isn't good enough that it makes me more confident yet. It just is like another thing I'm not good at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I, I can imagine it feel it's uh it must feel a little annoying if you're really good with this one language and then you feel like okay now you have to learn this other one because it, it the 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 benefit is so high and uh, but it, it the learning cor- curve is, is is a little annoying I guess. But I'm also pretty stubborn, so like I I just fight through it, you know, yeah. like. Because because sooner or later you like I think about Ember this way the first three weeks of Ember are rough mm-hmm. you know you, especially if you're not used to writing that much JavaScript and you're not used to the sort of paradigm that it that it operates under mm-hmm. you know then you've got a learning curve on at least two dimensions and uh, 
you know, plus some parts of Ember, like Ember data are younger and yeah. uh, then you're, you're going to deal with um, some issues there if you're doing anything that's sort of like non-standard. So, uh, you know, those three things are, are, were pretty hard at first, but then sooner or later you feel, you know, I don't feel as comfortable in Ember and JavaScript as I do in Ruby and Rails by any stretch, but, it, but at least it's feeling not so bad now. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, if you stick with it, it'll work. And and that's also um the good thing about Ember as far as I know because I don't I didn't work enough with Ember to to know myself, but what I heard is that the beginning with Ember is is steep and it's hard to get to really get to know Ember, but then when you through that, it it's uh it's pretty it's pretty nice to work with it. It's yeah, just, I think that that's right. I, I've heard other people say that too, and I think they're right that once you've got like two handfuls of concepts and you've like built enough that you've got a reference on all the core things you're going to do, then you know nothing's going to really feel that awful. You know, you just sort of mix the mix those ingredients again and and uh, follow the conventions for the rest, and you feel pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, so do you, uh, and in, when you write tests in Ruby, you really um, do the t test driven development thing. So you write the test first before you write the feature. I do. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I really have to get into uh, testing some more. I haven't uh, done that too much yet. <laughs> it's, um, it's just how I keep going. Like, so take today, I'll, I'll look at the I'll tell a real story about today. Okay. So before we talked today, I programmed all day. I did nothing else today. So, uh, so for seven hours and 39 minutes before we got on the phone, I programmed today, basically without interruption. Okay. And, and by myself. So during that time period, I didn't talk to anyone except mm -hmm. for my wife a couple of times. And, um, with tests, I like the going test driven, it just makes that possible because it's pretty hard to do anything for seven hours and 40 minutes straight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you've got the test, I, I mean, I, I could look and see how many I wrote today, but I probably wrote, I don't know, 70 tests today or something, or like I could figure it out, but you know, some decent number. So one per every four or five minutes, if I was guessing. And it's like a, it's just a way to keep me going. Right. So that I, cause I, write something and then say, okay, what do I want to do next? And I write the little test that proves it or, and then, you know, I, I fill in the gap and it's just like a constant one foot in front of the other, like going not test driven would be like walking with one leg. Like you could hmm. move, like I could move okay for a while, but I'd get tired, right? Like from hopping on one foot. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wouldn't be all that smooth. Whereas, Going test driven, it feels it doesn't make me that tired because I I sort of you know write the test and I write the feature, then I write the test and so on and so forth. And it's got this cadence to it hmm. that, especially by myself, um, it, it's almost like working with someone else. It's just that you happen to be that someone else, right? If you imagine that you're writing the tests in sort of one as one persona, and then you're making them work as another persona, and it just it, it feels less lonely and it helps keep things cruising along for me. Like today I was super productive. And if, if I was, wasn't writing tests, I just don't think that I could be as productive anymore. That sounds, yeah, it's the first time that, that I heard that. That sounds um, really interesting. So basically you're cutting up your, your work into little pieces and then just work them off like that. That's what the tests basically do for you. Yeah. They're like itsy bitty little tasks for yeah. me to do. 
And like that, what I'm working on right now is a very big project. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, many, 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 many months of work and, and some of it, I guess not that difficult, but some of it kind of difficult. And it just would be like staring at a giant mountain and saying, Oh my God, I, you know, how will I ever get to the top? You just wouldn't start if you tried to actually list out all the things that you have to do. But instead I just have a basic view of the top of the mountain. And then the tests are just putting one foot in front of the other from here to there. Um, and you know, I guess you could do that without the tests, but it's, it's, it's hard to keep, keep going for me. Mm -hmm. No, I totally understand that. It Yeah. So from what you're telling me, it feels like, okay, when you write the tests really um help you and if like like i said basically help you divide the the whole thing up into little um bits and pieces and then you work them off uh, but it also maybe helps you because you always have to you finish your feature and then you have to stop and you have to write your test and you you're taking the other side basically where you are basically the, the person saying now this feature needs to do this and it's if maybe it is also because you're taking those sides it helps to 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 keep going and finish something or a big big pile of work um because you're switching those between those two personas how you say it, it. yeah and it feels safer too because i mean i'm not coming up with this idea right this has been talked about since tests have been talked about but um you know, the tests are like a safety harness. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 um, program a lot right now and you know, I don't care who you are. If you're, if you're pushing more than say six, seven hours a day of actual coding, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean at work, not coding. I mean like actually hands on keyboard cranking away mm -hmm. as a lot of time, right? That yeah. is a, that is a whole lot of programming. And if I want to average right now, say, eight, nine, nine and a half, somewhere around there, um, it, you're going to get tired. And one thing that I've found tests have really helped with in like having a very good test suite is that I actually stress out a lot less about the quality of the initial solutions, right? Because I know that I can go refactor it fine and oh. the tests are going to, mm -hmm. you know, the tests are going to pass or not. And as long as you, you know, it takes a little bit to get good at this, I think, but once your tests aren't testing the implementation, but the actual, like, in other words, they're not testing how you wrote it, but the outcome of what the feature is supposed to do, mm -hmm. then you've got quite a bit of flexibility to say, all right, I'm going to like get something working and feel out a direction. And then if I have to, if I want to change it later, it's no big deal because the tests exercise the code well. And I can go and make those changes maybe in a new branch and see how they work out. And if I like it better, um, I don't have to worry about like actually busting everything that I did because the tests sort of have my back. I've already written the client that's, that's sort of uh, validating that it all works. And that means that I, I felt both more able to work when I'm tired because, mm -hmm. um, I don't sweat about like if my foot slips, I'll fall down the mountain because mm -hmm. I've like got the, you know, I'm clipped in, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I also like, I just worked on something yesterday that was a different way of implementing something that I've implemented a lot of times before, but I kind of wanted to experiment with a different approach in part because maybe I was bored and in part because I had a, I had a real need and testing made that way more feasible to me because if I have to switch back to another implementation, I could no problem. Like the tests, uh, the tests were there in the first place and they'll still be there. Um, 
uh, if I wanted to go to a third implementation of this idea. And that means it's just easier to sort of explore a new territory because uh, like, what's the worst that's going to happen is I'm going to break um, break something, but the tests are going to tell me where I broke it, which is, you know, means it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. No, I totally, uh, I totally um, knew that about tests that, that basically you can refactor easily. Uh, and I had that basically in my head. And I was, when I, when, whenever I was thinking and talking about tests with people, that was always like this argument, you know, that's why it's great. But I didn't, this, this was actually a new aspect of, for me, what you just said about that. You don't really have to worry in the beginning that your solution is perfect or especially well done or whatever, because you, you just don't have to have, you don't have to worry about it from the beginning. You can always come back and then change it up later, later, even if your app has grown uh, immensely because you know, this part is tested. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right. Yeah. Very, very, um, very cool. I'm learning some, some new stuff here. Um, so how did you take uh, DHH's uh, keynote last year? <laughs> Oh, well, um, I don't really have that outrage gene in me. Like, I just don't get all fired up about things. Like, I get excited about things, but I don't get angry all that often. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I found the the anger a little bit funny. I mean... so his, I guess his anger uh, or or people's <laughs> both. <laughs> I found his, I find his anger a little funny, and I found find other people's like reaction to him a little funny too. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said, I'm not while I get a lot personally out of testing. I don't have. I think some people can get quite sort of um, judgy about other people's testing opinions. And like, I know what works for me and I think that it's, it's pretty thought through and I've got a decent amount of experience in it now. And, and that's why I feel the way that I do. I don't really get all worked up about what someone else is going to do. Um, and, and therefore I, I found it a little bit funny that, that he was railing against testing so hard. Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem like something to get fired up about. And then I found people getting outraged that he, you know, says things too strongly and swears too much and, and sort of is a contrarian, like I just goofy, right? Like, I mean, he's been that way the whole way. So this is just his, his shtick. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't really, if, if I was in his position, I wouldn't, um, I don't think that I would be quite as combative as he is. I don't, I don't know what it, 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 um, gets him, but I also think that, he can be as combative as he wants to be. It's his call. Um, just not my personal style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suspect, I mean, I think that he, he's tweeted out some things recently about what his rails conf, uh, keynote is going to be this year. And my guess is it's going to be a repeat. It's going to be similarly divisive and get people all worked up. And, <laughs> and I, 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 uh, I just don't have it in me. Like I, like I think that he, uh, instigates problems unnecessarily. I think that's accurate, but I also think that's his, you know, prerogative if he wants to do it. I think other people get, you know, too cranked up about their opinions and his being wrong, et cetera. And I think that, you know, back to what we talked about with, um, um, Ember and what I like about, uh, 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 
open source communities that aren't really dominated by a company is that even though people can get a little bit, people will say things like, yeah, well, DHH, you know, gets to call all the shots on rails. I mean, the reality is, is that he gets to call things like what's the default, but if you're an experienced rail, even if you're not that experienced of a rails programmer and you want to switch away from what he likes to what you like, like, so for example, if you don't want to use ham or you don't want to use ERB, you want to use Hamel for, templating if you're going server rendered you know it's like it's like three minutes to change like it's so easy and everything's so modular Mm -hmm. that um if he had a lot of power and was like lording over everyone with choices that couldn't be changed because things weren't modular i don't think that i would like rails Mm -hmm. but the reality is is that he's just picking defaults and i don't i don't really care much like if i like the defaults i'll stay with them and if i don't like them i'll change to something else and not really waste all that much time getting angry about any of it yeah no there's no need for that i i really um i really enjoy watching him talk though i think he's a he's a great storyteller (laughs) i think so too yeah i think i I, if i i wish he wouldn't swear as much i think that sort of bothers me but Mm -hmm. um yeah I don't even know why. Like, I don't know why that bothers me, but cause it's not, it's not like I've got some sort of rule that I don't swear at all in life, but I don't, I, I have given a lot of public, um, speeches of different sorts and I would never swear in that, in that context. But besides that, yeah, I think he's pretty, he's pretty compelling and you know, he gets, he takes extreme positions and that can be fun, especially if you just see them as showmanship, not some sort of, uh, not some sort of thing to get yeah. upset about. Yeah, I, I think I think he. Um, um, I mean, the extreme positions to me are always uh, entertaining, and um, like I said, I like his his way of storytelling. But there's always some interesting. I think there's always uh, also in the stuff that is very controversial, and where you re- at the end at the end of the day you say, okay, it's a matter of taste or whatever. But there's always some interesting thought in there somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, at the very least, yeah. like I think you're you're going to get one of two things for sure with a DHH presentation. Either you agree, and then there's plenty of things that he says that I totally agree with. Mm-hmm. And like you said, his his um, point of view is pretty thought through and very like passionately delivered and mm-hmm. pretty interesting. So like if you agree, well now you've got like a uh, another good argument to put in <laughs> your quiver. And yeah. if you don't agree, um it's it's quite easy to see it because like he says it so in such an extreme way that there's no like getting around that you don't agree with him when you don't agree. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. like what's a good example? Like RSpec. So I really like RSpec as a testing framework and he doesn't like it. And okay. if someone sort of didn't have such our ERB and Hamels the same thing. If someone doesn't have such like a clear position against your position, and then it can be easy to see that you sort of agree. Yeah, well, I guess we agree on most of it. But in his case, like he takes such extreme positions that it's it's not it's easy to see you don't agree when you don't agree. Mm-hmm. And that actually kind of sharpens my arguments up. So it's it's kind of like it's all win, right? Either I agree with him and now my arguments are better or I disagree with him and like my reaction is so strong to his strong position that I file down my point of view more tightly. You know, because I, uh, in, in sort of a visceral response to his, uh, to his, uh, position that he put out there. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's, it's pretty fun to listen to him speak. Yeah, it makes sense. So basically it's always a win-win. I think so. Maybe that's my philosophy on life, but it definitely is my philosophy with listening to DHH presentation. That's a good, that's a good philosophy to have. Um, so 
What I've been hearing a lot is about Ember 2. And this is also something that I can't attest to because I haven't used it a lot, like I said before. But um, is what I've heard is that Ember is great when you use it the Ember way. But if you want to use it differently in some cases, um, sometimes in edge cases, um, it can be really hard to use it because you have to, so to speak, fight against the framework. Is that something that you have already experienced um, or not? Yeah, I think that that's accurate. I think it's like Rails that way, where okay. now Rails is a lot more mature than Ember, so I think there are some differences on this point. But, um, you know, they both tout convention over configuration as like a key tenet of the philosophy that underpins the framework, right? So they say, you know, well, like you should be able to change things to you know, configure them to your needs. However, most people's needs are not different, right? Most people have the same needs on like a whole variety of choices. So instead of having everyone waste time making the same choices again and again, we're, we're going to, as a community, make thoughtful defaults, the conventions, that then um, most people will go with unless they've got some particular need to, to not go with them. So I think that there's there's some trouble when you fight the framework for two reasons. You know, one is that generally speak, speaking, people aren't fighting the framework. So you're now in territory that's like less explored, less documented. The examples aren't quite as good. Maybe the testing isn't quite as good, right? Because it's like not quite on the on the main path. Um, but I think that there's another reason, which is uh, there's a, there, there are good reasons why the community made the choice they did for the convention. Like, and it very well may, may be that the convention is the one that is less perilous than the, the alternative on a given choice. So if you go the alternative, maybe you're optimizing for something that the community, generally speaking, isn't. Um, well, there's a decent chance now you're into a difficult trade-off. Like, you better really want the benefit of that alternative um, to the convention because the convention's probably better on, on all the other things. Mm -hmm. And I think the combination of those two things... Um, make it uh, uh, make what you said true. I also think that once you're used to using a framework that has like a convention over configuration approach, um, you get used to how easy things are. And if all of a sudden you're off in the weeds having to fiddle with everything, it, the, the contrast is so strong to what you're used to mm -hmm. that it's very noticeable. Whereas if you're like always fiddling with things, well, well, you know, there's nothing to notice when you're fiddling more. You know? yeah. So I, I think maybe that's the third thing. Mm -hmm. So have you run into any problems in, like in edge cases or something like that? Well, I mean, most of, most of my challenges with Ember were, or have been with Ember data. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've, I've talked a bit on the other podcasts that I've been on recently about this, but I think that that is nothing fundamental to Ember data. I think that it's, um, well, maybe it's two things, you know, one Ember data is still young. So it's, it's, uh, at the point in its maturity curve where you're going to have some, uh, it's not going to be quite as full featured as it will be in, you know, another six months say, but I think the other issue is that, um, we still haven't reached a point where we've as a community agreed to the standard, the convention for how servers should both respond with and take requests for, um, 
uh, via JSON, right? So like mm-hmm. if I ask for a resource, what format should that resource come back with? How should it represent its relationships? How can I update it? And given that there are many alternatives that are possible and there haven't really been a strong set of conventions that have been adopted, it means that the li- the tooling, the libraries that are going to deal with um, connecting your client to the server are going to, it's, it's difficult, right? Because you, you can't build a great open source library as like a st- standard adapter if there's no standard. Uh, so uh, JSON, JSON API is the, is the standard that Yehuda Katz and uh, Ember generally has said will, it will support as like a first class um, a first class standard for for kind of the way that servers can talk and um, they're very close like within a week or two I think um, from going 1.0 on that standard and my guess is that the in the year following that, so what will be really 2015 and the beginning of 2016, we'll see just massive improvements in both the client and the server libraries around consume, creating and consuming APIs because we, uh, we desperately need that standard so that everyone can say, okay, hey, if you follow this standard, you can use this library in both directions. So you know, I, I don't, so most of my challenges to your question, um, around, uh, if you, if you kind of get off the the main road have been around this area, but I have a, just a ton of optimism that this is something that the community is going to really figure out this year. And like, I'm, I'm doing my part or as much as I can right now to, to try to help out. Cause I, I, I can see that I can see where it's going and I'm really excited by it. Oh, so are you participating in the discussions or? Well, so the JSON API resources is a, is a Ruby gem that's, uh, that makes it easy to create the, the API, um, from a Rails app. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so its goal is to not just create the serializers that'll like represent your resources in the format that's expected, but also, um, create the controller endpoints so that you can handle the, um, you know, the creating and the updating and the getting and the uh, fetching of the indexes, et cetera. So it's like a, a whole solution to creating the, the, uh, a JSON API compliant API. So I've, um, contributed some to that and I'll keep contributing some to that. Cause I really think it's a smart project. And I, th- I think it's, uh, I think we'll look back in three years and go, Oh my God, I can't believe that we didn't have that project before. And then, you know, I haven't, I don't think that I've really added much value to the JSON API project, but I am an active reader and commenter on it, hmm. uh, you know, or mostly a reader, but they are very close to finalizing and I've been paying very close attention to the, the, um, release candidate two that just got posted last week and commented a little bit and mainly just read it and make sure that I understood and didn't disagree with any of it before it went final. So that's what I've done. Cool. Uh, that sounds yeah, that sounds really like this is um, a missing piece. I didn't, I didn't know about that before. Um, before I didn't know about the JSON API standard that they're working on. That sounds like um, a big productivity boost once that's back, uh, once that's uh, in, and uh, and everybody is adopting it. Yeah, if you want to take a look at it, if you go to um, JSON API on GitHub, you'll, you'll find or just search for JSON API. Mm -hmm. And in the pull requests, you'll see a, I don't remember what it's called, but something like, um, release candidate to proposal, 
That's, uh, that'll be the like the pull request with the most uh, comments. That's the one to read because that has all of the sort of recent commentary on the final changes that they're planning on making before going to one Oh. And I think it's, it's a very thoughtful document. Um, Dan get get part that wrote it, I think did a really good job. And the comments are, there are a bunch of smart comments on it too. So if anyone wants to catch up with how that's going, I, that's what I'd read. Cool. Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely going to link it up. Um, and, and I'm going to take a look at it as well. Um, yeah, um, I feel I feel just like you said. I think I think once this is uh, once this is up and um, a lot of people have adopted it, then people will feel like, <laughs> how could you live without it? This is really something that's that's very needed for sure. I, I really like how um, the um, the whole Ruby and now also Ember community and the, how how those people that work on those projects and also the people who work with the software or um that build stuff with it uh, how they think about productivity and how productive that community is um yeah i think it's because the people that are making the choices are also the people that are writing a lot of the code so there's a lot of you know uh, unlike where you've got like um you know, when you get big companies involved, you inevitably will have people that are making decisions that are a little bit far from the work and their decisions will reflect that. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that just, you know, they're making decisions from their vantage point and their vantage point isn't as a programmer. Yeah. And, um, that's just not true in the open source community, mm-hmm. you know, like in, in, in Ruby certainly is, is this way, but I think Ember is like that too, where the people that are making calls write a lot of this stuff every day. And their choices reflect that, you know, you, you, they're not making choices from the vantage point of a middle manager that, that hasn't written code for 20 years, you know, and, and, uh, it makes a difference, right? Yeah, they make, yeah. they, they, they optimize for the, the people that are writing the code much more. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's also something that I like about Ember versus Angular, um, that there, there, there are, um, a lot of, uh, open source applications that you can look at, like big applications that are written in Ember that you can uh, go to GitHub and take a look at how they're made, basically. And that that um, also Tom Dale and Yehuda, they're also working on a, a real, wor- real world big Ember app. So they have the same problems that, that developers have that work with Ember every day. And... Um, uh, and it for me, I don't like if if I would have to write a big Angular app, I really wouldn't know. Now, now off the top of my head, maybe there is something like that out there, but that it's not well promoted. If if there is, I re, I really wouldn't know where to go, which GitHub account GitHub account I I would have to look at to to look at um the architecture of a big Angular app. With Ember, I know I can uh, I can check out the, the discourse thing or um i think um isn't the application that yehuda and tom are working on also open source i'm not sure no skylight's not open source but oh, it's okay. written in ember and i think yeah i, I think that you said sort of two important things i mean the one dhh has preached this for years and i think he's right that when a framework is extracted out of 
an application, you know, there are some downsides because it ends up being a little coupled to what the purpose of that application was. But man, the benefits are really big Mm -hmm. because, you know, it, they've had, uh, in making the framework had to deal with the implications of the framework's choices and adjust. Whereas if you just write it in a, in a clean room, so to speak, you're just not having to deal with it. And, you know, your choices will reflect that, that you didn't actually have to pay for, so to speak, the difficulties you created. So, um, yes, yeah, skylight is, is embers base camp. You know what I mean? That's right. the, mm-hmm. that, that's the huge project that, um, is using Ember and help, uh, uh, push it along. But I think that your point also is totally right that the, that in addition to that being true, that, um, it's pretty easy to see examples of Ember apps. Now I think that some people get a little t- turned off because of the rapid, uh, how rapidly things changed from kind of the JS bin examples of that people would share to now everything going Ember CLI. And mm-hmm. that can get a little bit confusing if you don't know what's going on, but, um, the benefits of Ember CLI are so gigantic that, um, uh, you know, whatever it's, it's worth it for the community to, yeah. to deal with that transition. Let me tell you about our second sponsor today, CodeShip. CodeShip is continuous delivery made simple. CodeShip is based on usability, so everything is designed to be as easy to use as possible. In fact, CodeShip listened to all the feedback that their users gave, and they recently redesigned their entire application. So not only does the new design look better, but it also has a lot of new usability improvements to, to make things even easier than before. You can set up continuous integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. Great support for lots of languages and test frameworks. They're integrated with GitHub and Bitbucket, so wherever your code is hosted, you are good to go. And you can deploy to cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or your own servers. CodeShip has a free plan, so anyone can try it out. The uh, free plan includes 100 builds a month and then five private projects. So you can try it out on on a handful of your own private projects in addition to your open source work. Anyhow, find uh, CodeShip on CodeShip.com and check out their blog. It's quite good at blog.codeship.com to get updates and to get good tips about uh, various programming-related topics. If you use the offer code 5x5RUBY, you'll get 20% off any plan for three months. My thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring. Yeah, uh, Ember, Ember CLI, I also looked at that. Um, I really, I really, Ember CLI is, is insane. Like, it's really good. And I, um, it, it's, this is another, this is another really big point, I think, for Ember. Because when you look at the tooling, um, uh, from other frameworks it's all it's there's there's nothing comparable to that there's yeoman generators or you know people just gluing stuff together by themselves um with grunt or gulp or something like that but there is not this like default kind of tooling that everybody uses that is really really high quality that's really well made and everybody knows how to to handle so that's that's definitely a big big plus there um in the ember in the ember way um are you excited about handlebars i don't know html bars actually 
Yeah, I think it's great. I think it took a, a ton of work. I think that the the reason for doing it was solid. I, I think if they had, like, like just about anything that any of us do that's, that's big, if they had known at the beginning what they were getting into, I'm not sure they would have uh, jumped in so feet first. But it's really uh, worked out great. And just this week went um, non-beta onto, I forget the number, I guess it was Ember 1.10 or 1.11. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, so it's, it's as of right now, kind of, uh, uh, out of beta first class feature. And I think it's, uh, I think it's great. Like the API first conversation we had before, the most exciting thing about HTML bars from my point of view, I, I, well, I there are a couple of things that are good, but I love what it enables. In other words, like out of the box, they were going for, can we, you know, have it work with the handlebars templates and they achieve that. And now you see like every week or two, um, they'll add, they're adding additional features that now are extending that. So say, say, okay, now we've hit parity with being able to, to render, um, handlebars, um, syntax, but now what can we add? You know, can we add, um, the blocks, which is a big thing a couple weeks ago, or can we add the, the, um, one liners? Can we add the, the uh, get rid of bind adder and just um, uh, directly put the the variable in the the attributes value. You know, so so the the promise of HTML bars was that these f- features would be possible, amongst some other things. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting to see it now happening, right? Like all those things that they thought would be possible are just coming quick and you know quick and uh, and at pretty high quality. So yeah, I think it's great. Cool. Does it does it change how you work? Um, nope. Not at all. Okay. No, I mean it enables some new things, yeah. so that's good. But if you could, uh, with a few exceptions at least, you could basically keep going without changing anything you do, and it'd be fine. Okay, cool. And uh, does is it is it as far as I know, it's very inspired by React, and React is is pretty heavy code wise for just being a view layer. Like there's a lot of code, I guess because of the dom diffing does it does the, the html bars add like uh it does it bloat ember Do you know? no no i don't i don't think so um so so the goal of html bars again you you could so handlebars and i'm way in the deep end for me on this one because i don't i've never worked on html bars but here i'll, I'll attempt to <laughs> to describe the key things mm-hmm. so uh handlebars rendered strings Right, so it was just concatenating strings together to create the 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 document that the browser was rendering. Yeah, the uh, HTML bars does not render strings; it builds a document object model. Right, mm-hmm. so it builds a DOM. So that is like fundamentally at the base the difference. Their goal was: can we go from an entire sort of uh, a tooling set that was concatenating strings to build the front end to one that's building a DOM directly. And then once you then can, like once you've made that transition so that instead of building up strings, you've built up a DOM as like a first class idea, then you can do all sorts of other things. Mm-hmm. So not, is it ju- not, is it uh, only faster, which it is, um, but you can also do things like get rid of the bind adder, um, hack that they had to put in. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of those two things. And your point about 
about React and being a bit verbose. I mean, so yes, given that it's not just building strings, you can do everything basically via JavaScript in, instead of writing it in in like a template itself. And this is where I'm too far in the deep end to be smart. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't have to. So you also can just, as you've always done, write the templates in what looks like handlebars, like a, the templating language, and it will create those objects, you know, on the fly for you. Um, yeah. Now that may be true of React too. I don't know, but it, or it may be true that you have to write it on the JavaScript side and have it then render the the template for you. I'm not sure. Well, the thing is with React is is so they build a DOM as well, and but then they have the DOM diffing feature, and that allows you to basically um, write apps um, a little simpler, so that you you basically write a JavaScript JavaScript application like you would write a server side application where you think in uh, when you have when you get a specific state. The app looks a certain way, and your models look a certain way, and you basically send that to React, and React then takes care of the diffing, right? And it figures out, okay, what does what do I actually have to change in the actual DOM of the browser? So you don't have to do that anymore, right? Right. And does 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 HTML bars introduce something similar? Does it introduce DOM diffing as well, or is it just about building the DOM fragment or building the DOM in JavaScript? So I, I'm going to avoid being wrong on this. So I, <laughs> okay, I uh, what I do know is that um, uh, Ember has quite the Ember team has quite publicly sort of said what they like about uh, how React is. Um, handling things. So mm-hmm. building the, do they call it the virtual DOM? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. So building the virtual DOM and, and executing the features you just mentioned. And as far as I know, um, basically all of the features that they like from React, they are porting in. Okay. Um, which is, which is as far as I know, everything you just mentioned. Um, okay. but again, I, I'm not, I try to keep up on it pretty well, but, um, uh, I, I don't stay up super tight on react in part because I'm, you know, I'm personally not that familiar with it. So I only know about react from reading about what people like about react. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which is a lot of things apparently. Uh, yeah, apparently. I mean, the react community is just exploding. It's uh pretty yeah. interesting. There's a, there's also, a, I think significant, a significant amount of people, at least developers that are moving from angular to react. And also pro- uh, prolific uh, 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 switches from the Ember community. At least one guy, <laughs> the the, the um, Ryan Florence. He used to be big on Ember, and now he's big on React. And he did the React router, which is very influenced by the Ember router. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> no, there's some interesting interesting stuff going on for sure. So um, now I have I have another. Um, question that is not uh, ember related this is ruby related and it, because I, d- I don't know anything um really about ruby i never wrote ruby and never wrote ruby on rails i only read about it heard about it watched some talks and stuff like that so um excuse my ignorance here but my question so what i've heard 
is that that Ruby and also Ruby on Rails is slow. Uh, um, uh, um, is a slow language. Like I don't know, it's hard to to make perform um, uh, with when when you have when you have a high load. So um, and that is kind of an in arguments that kind of comes up often and 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 uh developers of other languages like to make fun of that or whatever um but uh, so so since you know it so well i would like to i would like to know um wh when does that so so i will just uh, assume now that it is uh you know slower than i guess c plus plus or uh maybe java or whatever but w when does that 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 become a problem is it do, do you run in, into stuff like that is it is it only when there's a really high load if you have millions of people coming to your site or is it uh when do you hit that problem yeah so uh, a couple things so i think that that criticism is is perfectly fair and uh, for a few reasons i mean one it's a it's a interpreted dynamically typed language right so um it is being compiled on the fly and has to take on the overhead of um, the dynamic typing as well. So, right, so it, it can't optimize knowing that a given variable is going to be of a certain type and therefore you can count on it for to have certain properties because anything can be anything, mm -hmm. right? So you, you have to, anytime anything can be anything, you got to take on the overhead of dealing with it. Um, not to mention it's not, um, well, I mean, for that, that reason alone, it couldn't be um, compiled. So it's like any other similar language, it's got that going on, right? So right. JavaScript is the same way. Right. So that's sort of uh, factor one. And we'll get back to the trade-off. So you just have to decide, is that worth it? Like, do, mm -hmm. do the benefits of uh, it being an interpreted language and dynamic, dynamically typed, are those uh, and some of the... the the other features that could slow it down a bit, are they worth the speed cost that I have to pay? Mm -hmm. And I think you alluded to some of the reasons why some people would say yes and some people would say no. Um, and I think that there's a second thing that Ruby's got going against it on the speed front, which is that unlike JavaScript, which isn't exactly going to set any land speed records either, um, but JavaScript has an enormous amount of money poured into it to make it faster or has had in the last five years, yeah. six years, whatever it is, right? Because it's in every single browser. So it's, it's, uh, it, there is a tremendous amount of, uh, incentive for, um, Google and Apple and, uh, Mozilla, et cetera, to make JavaScript run as fast as humanly possible. And uh, if you look at the man years that have been put on um, the JavaScript compiler compared to Ruby, well, it's not even close, right? JavaScript's going to be way higher. Now, not that JavaScript is ultra fast. I mean, JavaScript is nice because it's it's running on the computer that's in your pocket instead of in the you know in the cloud somewhere that's far away from you. Um, so I think that that's a second uh, a second thing to think about. So on your question, like, is it worth it? Well, yeah, it depends on what you're doing. So um, I have never personally worked on anything that was consumer scale, right? Where you're dealing with tens of millions of users. Right. 
Now, if you are, and especially if each of those users does has a very small incremental value to the company, right? That because there are millions that they're worth a lot, but individually they're worth pennies, right? In those circumstances, then optimizing for performance makes a lot of sense, um, right? Because they they, they uh, otherwise the expense of each of those users is going to be just too high if you want to keep performance to a certain level at least. Um, now, if you're not working at that scale, if you're working at more business scale, which uh, uh, in which every user has much more value, right? And there may and there are many fewer of them. So instead of ten million, you've got a thousand or ten thousand. Um, then it just doesn't matter that much for most things, at least, right? Yeah. Because um, in order to have the performance that you want, the cost of producing that performance in terms of server capacity just isn't that significant. Um, and especially as you go to an API first strategy where you've got the server just doing server things and the clients all, you know, being, being computed elsewhere, um, then you've offloaded a decent portion of the work onto the computers, right? The, the mobile, mobile phones and the, the laptops that are doing the work. Mm -hmm. So I think it's sort of a, it's it's a weird thing when people get all fired up about this topic because it's just they're just trade offs like everything like you know yeah. it, which matters more developer happiness or operations cost uh, which matters more um, uh, call it frames per second um, like it does do frames per second matter or or you know are we so far below the ceiling that it just isn't a concern and. You know, it's uh, one thing that I like about the API first strategy about apps in general is that it's it, it actually frees you up to change over time. So let, let's take the app that I'm working on right now. True. Let's imagine that it had a million users in a year. It won't, but let's just say it did. Mm-hmm. And the Ruby app that currently powers it then in order to perform in the way that we want would just be outrageously expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no big deal, right? Because the interface is a JSON API um, interface. And all I have to do is basically port the application, um, to a new language and not change the interface. Um, so no, you know, no sweat. I mean, not that that wouldn't be a lot of work, but it wouldn't be the degree of difficulty wouldn't be hard. It'd just be expensive. Um, yeah, exactly. It's basically just, uh, it's half, half the work basically. Well, half the work. And you, I mean, you, you already have, an exact spec of what the interface needs to be. You just need to have it work on a compiled language that's faster. So if you want to move it to go or you want to, you know, move it to whatever you want to move it to, then, um, it's, uh, uh, you've sort of decoupled yourself from the language at that point in the framework, because the thing that's, that's, uh, most important then is the interface itself. The, 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 you know, both the HTTP uh, expectations around what HTTP requests you're going to get and the format of the JSON payload of those requests right. in the URL, basically. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> so the Ruby and Rails podcast, when did you start that? Well, originally it was done by someone else. I um, I started it, I started uh, being the host about a year ago. Okay. So, okay. So how old is it? Oh, geez. I think the first episodes were back in 2007. Okay. Or six, maybe wow. even. Now, it had a couple of runs and then went on a break. And uh, it, hadn't been, it hadn't been up and going for 
maybe four or five years prior to a year ago, which is too bad given the size of the Ruby on Rails community. Um, yeah. It was it was something that was missing, and uh, when um, Jeffrey, the guy that uh, used to run it, uh, tweeted out that he was looking for someone to take it over. I had uh, sort of had on my bucket list doing a radio show, and I figured, well, this is close enough. I might as well give it a try. <laughs> okay, so so you didn't you didn't do podcasting before that? No, mm-mm. Okay. I had a voice that people always sound said sounded like you'd be on radio, and I. Oh know. yeah, <laughs> you do have a radio voice. I don't. I don't mind. <laughs> now, no one's ever said I had a face for <laughs> modeling, but radio radio voice I'd heard. So you know, I, I I'd always been a little interested in in doing something. I had never really thought about doing a, a podcast necessarily, but it's been fun. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I really uh, I really like how you. Uh, how you, how you, you know, kind of uh, host the show and, and, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fun. It's really, um, I, I, I look forward to it. So oh, thanks. Enjoy the show. I appreciate that. Um, so now I forgot what I wanted to ask. Oh yeah. So it is on the five by five network. Was it on the network already when you started or it, it wasn't? No. No, I, you know, I didn't have that much time. Well, one, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like a lot of things you're like, oh, that'd be fun. You know, I'd have a, I'd learn how to do a radio show and I'd meet interesting people. And those two have been true. Now, there's also all the work, as you know, of like scheduling it and trying to be interesting every week and finding new people and Mm -hmm. just operationally editing it and whatever. So I... I wanted to take as much of that away as possible. And uh, Dan Benjamin, who owns Five by Five, was a early Ruby on Rails user. Mm-hmm. I don't really, I, I wasn't friends with Dan exactly, but I, you know, knew him enough to reach out at least about this, and said that you know the show we were interested in putting the show back on. Did he want it to run on Five by Five? And given his uh, history with Rails and and uh, you know, whatever other reasons, I guess he had. Um, he agreed. So I, uh, that, that gave me the confidence that, okay, I won't have to deal with some number of things, right? Like it'll, it'll, uh, I I can lean on five by five for some stuff and try to focus more on just making an interesting show. And it's been a pretty, it's been a pretty good, uh, yeah, trade. I think I'm, I'm happy I did that. Uh, so what, what do they do? Do they do the editing or what do they take over? You know, they can do the editing, although they don't. I, I end up doing it mostly because, um, well, you edit a show. So it, uh, it would be more difficult to communicate what I want edited than it, than it is to edit. Uh, so I just uh, do Okay. It. Okay. You know what I mean? Like saying, okay, well at this part, a dog barked and the internet <laughs> flaked and you know, <laughs> whatever else. So I figured out a few episodes in t- to keep it as simple as I possibly can. Now, in the more recent episodes, I've added some things like, you know, put some music in back of the ad reads and occasionally splice in something that I think is interesting mm-hmm. um, audio-wise. But that's just because I've edited enough of them now that I feel a little more comfortable. But no, the main things that they do are, so they've got the website. Um, so it's, you know, super easy to put up uh, the episode. They handle the hosting. They put ads on the show. Um Oh, so, you, so you don't take uh, you don't um, do acquisition for the ads. No, mm-mm. Oh, okay. I I just read the ads. Mm-hmm. 
I don't, I don't, uh, I, I do zero work related to the ads except, uh, trying to make them okay. Okay. Do you get, do you get some money from that? From the ad, uh, yeah. So that, yeah, there, there's advertising revenue. Now I didn't, you know, I consider the, the whole thing like a bit of a, a golf game each week, right? This is like, you know, three hours that I put into entertaining myself and other people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I really don't care much about the money. I've tried to, to do some, do some things that I thought was helpful with it, but, but yeah, there is some, there is some ad revenue for it. Mm. Cool. Um, so how long do you need to to basically so you said three hours is it uh three hours just recording the show or is it including editing and everything i try to keep it to less than three hours for everything wow yeah yeah i said try uh <laughs> although i think you know i've gotten not bad at that i think and i and i record my for about two months now i've recorded my time like so everything i do i, I record what i'm doing mm -hmm. and it's made a big It's like made a pretty big impact on my working life hmm. because, um, now I, like I could look back and see, for example, how long last week or the, you know, three weeks ago or whatever it took to totally handle the podcast for the week. Hmm. And I bet I'm averaging somewhere in like the 245 range right now for the last month. That's good. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's hard to get it lower than that though. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, especially if you do, uh, All this editing with the new format. Format. <laughs> I try not to do too much because right? it definitely adds. But, but yeah, yeah, I do a little bit. So, so yeah, I heard that episode where you were introducing the new format. Um, so why did you why did you bring that new format into the podcast? Oh well, I I, I kind of always had um, a variation of that in mind, and then uh, if you if you listen to the first or second episode, you'll hear something that's a little bit similar. But just I don't know, didn't quite get it right the first year. And then coming into the second, I wanted a little bit more structure on the episodes. Now I really haven't executed on this. I've done a couple of other interviews recently and, and I posted one from the full stack radio podcast as like a cross post episode this past week. because I really liked how it turned out. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mainly just, just to, just to, uh, provide a bit more definition to the show to, um, you know, I, I paid attention to the shows that I like that are produced by professionals like, uh, you know, from NPR or whatever, and yeah. tried to pick out what I like about them. And, um, a lot of the things that I like about them, I'm not going to be able to, to, to get done with the Ruby on Rails podcast just because of the difference in time. If I'm putting two hours and 45 minutes into one episode, they're putting 245 minutes into one episode. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> But there are other things that I can, like there's like the poor man's version of an NPR show, which I can do. Mm -hmm. I can name the sections. I can use bumper music. I can um, uh, put a little bit more structure so that the, the listener knows what to expect. And frankly, over time, I think that helps me a little bit because it's, it's like fewer things to think through. I mean, you've got a bit of a format, so you know how that works, mm -hmm. that it's uh, a little bit of structure goes, goes, uh, you know, goes a long way, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, I like, I like the, the, that you, that you took the idea, basically the inspiration from, which one was it again? Um, startup, I think. For, oh yeah. For the, for the music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For the music. But I have, can I, can I uh, give you a specific feedback for that? Oh, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Because, um, I thought, so, so basically when, when you put your music in, I felt like because of the frequencies that the music uses 
and the frequencies of your voice, which are typically uh, like in the middle, like just uh, you know people's voices, um, they 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 occupy uh, to a certain degree. There's an overlap in the frequencies, so that kind of makes your voice a little bit less clear in the ad read. Then, yeah, I agree. I I tried to click down the volume on the most recent. Like I agree, and I'm just like a you know good but, for nothing editor. yeah but the, the the thing is the thing is you don't have to the the changing the volume is not going to help a lot because you always have that overlapping of the frequency mm. so either you have to take out the the you know the the frequencies that your voice occupies out of the track or you have to choose the track and when you listen to to the to the startup track very specifically they have which is very interesting because that's why I think it works so well for them. It's because they chose the music really well. It's because the music consists out of very low tones. Yeah, I was going to say super low on theirs. Yeah. Exactly, and and very high tones. You know, mm-hmm. the like the uh, hi hat or whatever All Perc- right. percussion stuff in there. So, um, so I like I said, I really I think it 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 it, it still works on your on your. Um, on your version as well, but if if you can find music that kind of doesn't occupy that middle range, then um, I think it would be even better. Well, I appreciate that feedback, and I will see what I can do. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. So so how does it how does it work with the guests? Do you have do you always have a new guest, or do you have recurring guests? They're mostly new, although um, th- there there are some recurring guests. Like I was just talking to a guy um, uh, uh, that's been on once before earlier today that uh, we were talking about when he's going to come on next. So I've sort of I've had enough people on now that that and, and also people that I'm friends with um, that I'm interested in having more recurring guests, and I think that I will have more recurring guests. But I'd say eighty five or ninety percent have been new over the last year, maybe maybe eighty five. Mm-hmm. I think with your your new for- format kind of lends itself to to also having more recurring guests maybe because you also you you're kind of talking about news topical stuff a little bit right yeah I think that that's right and I think you know this is a funny thing for me to say but um, I've been paying attention to the feedback that I get on the show and I get a decent amount like I hear from a lot of people that listen and um, mm. people seem to like. Uh, like p- people like the episodes where I'm not the, an, where I'm like a character, not just the interviewer more. Um, so I think that that, that lends itself to recurring guests more because when it's someone that's brand new, you have to, you know, it's important that you mainly just try to be a good interviewer and steer the conversation. Whereas if it's someone that is recurring, then, you know, you don't, you, you can more equally play yeah. a role. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that seems to be what people prefer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's where I'm going to go, but you know, we'll see. Yeah, I think um yeah, uh that's a, that's that's interesting. Uh, it's I think it's a it's a it makes sense though cuz um well, maybe maybe it is it's just it's also it just kind of it's nice to mix it up a little bit, you know, if you have some <laughs> I, shows. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, some shows could be like total interview shows and some shows could be just uh, you and a recurring guest kind of going back and forth. Um, that could be a that could be a nice mix because because there's there's pro and cons for for both kind both kind of. Yeah, and, I agree. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, the, the fun thing about the interview is that it's potentially great. Like, so some of the, inter- like where we're, I'm interviewing someone that I've never met before, which is most of the shows, mm-hmm. some of them just turn out super interesting. Like I'm totally interested the entire time. And the person's full of interesting content. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's less interesting, mm-hmm. but, um, that's, that's the trade you make with the interviews is that you're gonna, it's going to be a, going to be a bit of a grab bag, some great, some not good. And there's no avoiding that. Whereas if it's a recurring thing, you'll never be surprised so much, right? Because it's the same people. Yeah. Um, but you kind of know what you're getting. So I, I'm with you. I think a, a little bit of a mix is nice because you, you get to take some risks on some guests and see how high you can push things, but then be able to fall back onto a show that's like dependably good. Yeah, exactly. And also, also a good point is I think uh, that it kind of, it lightens the weight on the schedule scheduling a little bit. <laughs> that's, that's definitely true. <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, I, I I was planning on doing this show every week, but uh, there's no way for it's me. It's hard. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just next to next to a full-time job to, to kind of uh, take taking care of uh, scheduling and editing and everything, uh, I just I just can't do it. So I, I'm switching to, I'm trying to do it every uh, every other week. So we'll see if, if I can keep that up. Yeah, so <clears throat> I think uh, we're ready to, to move to the picks. Oh, great. So um, what is your first pick? All right. Well, I'm going, since we're talking podcasting, I've got one podcasting pick. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's one that people may know about it, but on the off chance there's one person listening that does not listen to this podcast, it's worth mentioning, which is the Invisibilia podcast from NPR that came out um, a month ago. Have you listened to it? Uh, no, but my wife has been listening to it, and she loves it. Oh, it is so good. It is. I think it really shows uh, me a couple things. One, how great a podcast can be. Now, I mean, there are other great podcasts that I think have pushed pushed the uh, the medium pretty far too. But there's something about this one that's different. And the reason I picked it is that it's got. And I've been searching for the right way to describe this. Like I've been talking to my my mother and my wife about it. It's got a female voice that I just don't hear in the rest of my life. Like, in other words, I don't hear it in other media. So if you listen to the show, I, I, I think you'll know what I mean. That the personalities, uh, so that the two co-hosts are both, um, are both women. But, and, and that's not that uncommon, right? There are a lot of shows where you'll hear women. But it's not just that the hosts are women. It's that their sort of femininity, femininity is the tone of the podcast. So it's like this, it, it's this extremely smart, very witty, very interesting and honest podcast that has this, I don't know, has this like je ne sais quoi around, uh, around like a feminine sensibility that is, is unusual and makes me wonder what else needs that sort of tone that I'm not hearing. Mm. So I'm just totally into it. I think it's, they're, they're onto something with that. And, uh, I, I want to hear more like it. No, no, I really have to check it out. <laughs> super, it's super smart. Just listen from the beginning. You'll yeah. really like it. That's yeah. my first pick. Cool. Yeah, the NPR people have been cranking out some crazy stuff uh, um, recently. They're really good. Yeah. Um, okay, so my first pick is the download progress bar. Um, oh, no, uh, hold on. <laughs> that is a, a download progress bar on Dribble, which is basically just a little uh, anime, uh, animated GIF that somebody posted on Twitter. 
which which I really enjoyed. Which um, basically it's a little, it's just a it shows um, an empty basically an empty bar, and then there's and it's it, it kind of animates and it suggests okay now it's at ten percent twenty percent, and the animation is just really incredibly well thought out and 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 it's funny because there's even an animation for when the 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 download progress um is interrupted or fails hmm. then then the bar fills up with like with with white color and then this white color looks when it when it fails it looks like there's a hole in the progress bar and it kind of it it flows out of it like it's a it's a liquid or something like that and uh it's just incredibly well um, thought out, and um, that's fun. Are you going to post that in the, in the in the notes? In the notes, yeah. I'm linking, oh, cool. linking everything up. Yeah, so yeah, I'm gonna look, I look forward to seeing that. that. That's that. So, what is your second pick? All right, my second pick is the NBA. I, in general, now I'll be more specific, but I am convinced that people are missing out on the NBA. So, I, are you a sports fan at all? Uh, uh, occasionally. So I, like, I am a relatively big sports fan, but I, uh, last year sort of had someone else, and this is the reason it's my pick, had someone else say to me something like, you really should give the NBA a shot as your primary professional sport of choice that you watch for a year, like for a season. Mm -hmm. And just after that, come back and let's talk about how good, good or bad the NBA is. And, uh, they had some other reasons about, you know, why, uh, I should give it a shot over football, American football, which is, you know, my default. And I think most people here is default for what their uh, pro sport of choice is. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, I took the, I sort of took the challenge and then for the last year have been NBA first. Uh, so I'm still a football fan. But, uh, my number one sport in terms of time that I spend and, and, uh, sort of, uh, amount of interest that I devote is, is the NBA. And, uh, I would say if anyone else is interested in maybe switching up what sport they currently are following or, or, uh, picking up something, uh, new, uh, check out where the NBA is now. The quality of the game is just outstanding. The, the team play is amazing. The personalities are just fantastic. It's just, uh, I think it is, it is, uh, the most expo- exciting thing in pro sports right now. So, hmm. uh, yeah, that's my second pick. Cool. So, is is there any way? Is there any way where um how how people can follow the NBA that are not living in the in the US? Kind of. Oh yeah. So NBA League Pass is uh, the like subscription product that the NBA uh, offers that allows you to watch all of the games live over the internet either or live or on demand actually over the internet. Um, and I think that the NBA has the best sort of Twitter ecosystem of all the pro sports, Hmm. like the number of super smart people that are, that are tweeting about the NBA each night is fantastic. So it's actually one of the reasons that it's my number one. I just love, I love how smart the, the one segment of the fan base is that I pay a lot of attention to. And are you rooting for a specific team? I do. I root for the Bulls. Um, Chicago. I'm, yeah, I, I used to live in Chicago before moving to Connecticut. And uh, yeah, so I root for the Bulls first, but I, I'm an NBA fan as much as I am a Bulls fan. Okay, so you just uh, you can enjoy any game. So just oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
And is there? So is there? So so what I have noticed uh, with um, sports fans that root for a specific team, they have they have specific teams that they uh, specifically hate a lot as well. <laughs> is that something? <laughs> well, that's so, definitely true. Although I'm not like an ultra dyed in the wool bulls fan i mean i'm a very big bulls fan and i watch most of the games and i you know could could talk for many podcasts i think in a row about the team Mm -hmm. but um but it's not like i grew up hating um you know their rival uh Mm -hmm. so it's not like i grew up hating whoever so it's all yeah exactly so it's always the the rival that is hated basically the one that wins sometimes yeah i i think in the nba one of the things i like about the nba that makes it a little less rivalry driven than the other leagues um, is uh, is that it's so um, like star driven. So, you know, there are only five guys that are playing at a time and the difference between the, um, the best guy on the court at a given time and the third best guy is so enormous. Like that, the, the power of a star to swing the game is, is so high that as the, the team composition changes, like, who feels like the rival changes. Cause if, you know, for example, if, um, you know, LeBron James goes from the heat one year to the Cavaliers the next year, uh, when you like when the bulls play the, the heat, it doesn't feel anything like it felt last year, even though it's like one guy that moved, he's such a big component of, of the team that now that rival really just like got ported to Cleveland. So the, the rivalry in the NBA is I'd say, at least as much about the players as it is about the teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's representative of what the NBA is like in general, which is, a, is more as much about the players as it is about, about the team. Mm. And how much is a, is a pass NBA? Oh, league pass? League pass. Um, for the year, it's probably like $200. Oh, wow. Okay. For the, you know, you can pick it up during the year and it'd be, um, you know, maybe it's like a hundred bucks or 80 bucks for the rest of the year or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I mean, if you're not a super fan, then you can watch lots of NBA games on ESPN and TNT if you've got those available. But, um, but if you were overseas, if you, if you didn't live in the U S and you wanted to watch games, then league Pass is your answer. And yeah, it's going to set you back a couple hundred. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, so my second pick is, is, Actually, an article on signal versus signal versus noise, um, the the Basecamp blog, and say so they had this big blog post where they were announcing a podcast. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, um, I actually didn't listen to that yet. I was I meant to download that as well. But what I liked about that post was that they recommended uh, a bunch of podcasts. So they, they basically asked around at Basecamp and they were asking, you know, what do you listen to? And uh, they listed a lot of the, the you know, the big ones that everybody's listening to, those NPR ones and stuff. But um, it's a nice uh, comprehensive uh, blog post that goes actually also goes through categories um, of podcast comedy, tech, and obscure stuff and stuff like that and lists some really high quality um standout podcasts from all those categories which is i think it's uh it's definitely important to to have posts like that <clears throat> actually was thinking about that myself to do something like that because um now this the podcasting world is just exploding and there's so much 
and 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 just like in all the other media that is overflowing nowadays it's really good to have to have either every now and then like this post or or also on a regular basis have somebody who can pick and choose for you and kind of curate it yeah that's a good post i agree i thought that they must have had 50 or something on there 40 and uh, a lot of interesting ones yeah Yeah. Uh, what is your second no your third pick actually right yeah all right my third, so I, I mentioned before I live in Connecticut and I just moved house, uh, this past week and, uh, the, the new house is like kind of in the middle of the woods. So like out the back of the house, there's two ponds and wetlands and woods as far as you can see in every direction. So I went cross country skiing this weekend. This is my third pick is cross country skiing. Oh, um, cool. I hadn't gone cross country skiing since I was a kid and, uh, I don't know who, Oh, I know what it was. I was interested in maybe snowshoeing. So I was calling around uh, places that are near my house to see if someone uh, uh, had any snowshoes in stock because I was going to go get some because there's like four feet of the snow on the ground right now. I called Eastern Mountain Sports, a retailer around here that sells outdoor equipment, outdoor sports and camping type stuff. And they said, well, we don't have any uh, snowshoes uh, in stock. They're all sold or rented, but we have cross-country skis for rent. I said, Oh, that sounds good. So I went and picked up for a weekend cross country skis. It was just 35 bucks for three days and went for, I don't know, four or five hours this weekend, uh, cross country skiing. So miles and miles. Hmm. And, Oh man, I hadn't done it since I was 12, maybe, you know, uh, uh, maybe middle school and, uh, it's great. So if, uh, if someone has not done it, in a long time. I think it's interesting how my perspective on it changed when I was a kid. It felt like, like the boring alternative to downhill skiing Mm -hmm. and I like downhill skiing. And to some extent it is the boring alternative to downhill skiing, but that's like saying that like hiking is boring because it's not motorcycle riding. Well, (laughs) I mean, no, I mean, it it just is different. And so cross country skiing is my, you know, late thirties rediscovery of something that I just think is fantastic. And, uh, uh, I had no idea that I could, uh, take a weekend and, and cross country, cross country ski so much for 35 bucks. So if someone else is in the snowy North, like I am, take a look at that. Cool. I've never done that, but, um, yeah, we don't, we don't have enough snow here, I guess for that. You're in Stuttgart. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, it, it can be really snowy here. Um, it used to be, uh, it depends. Sometimes there's winters where there is a lot of snow for, for a few weeks, but, um, but recently, nah, not so much. My third pick is, uh, the Ruby on Rails podcast. Oh, oh you're kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, it's worth it. I really, um, I really enjoy it. It's a good, uh, it's, it's yeah. Like I said, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and uh, very interesting people on it. And now that they're, they're uh, if you're interested in Emperor, I would also recommend, you know, listening back to those episodes that you recently did. Yeah. So that's that. Um, the Do you have a music pick? I do. So I went um, this past Sunday, I saw one of my favorite musicians of all time perform. So he is going to be my pick, um, okay. but a couple specific things. So do you know who Duncan Sheik is? No. Do you remember that song from 
I don't know how old you are, but from the midnight or mid to late nineties, barely breathing, you've heard it a gazillion times on the radio or in stores before. Um, so there was this, like, uh, there's a guy that people imagine was a one hit wonder named Duncan Sheik. He had this song barely breathing. It was out in 1996. The thing is the guy is not a one hit wonder. He wrote a play called spring awakening. Have you seen that Mm-mm. or not play a musical? So he wrote the music for that and he wrote the music for American psycho, um, put out maybe seven or so albums. And I think he is, uh, he is the, that, that artist for me where I can't believe he's not one of the most popular artists in the world. Like, I think he is just unbelievably talented and his music is, is great. He's, uh, his songs are a little sad, which may be why he's not as popular as I think he could be. Maybe people don't like sad songs. Uh, but anyhow, uh, I saw him this weekend, uh, up in Northwest Connecticut in a little tiny, um, not that tiny, uh, small to medium sized music hall called infinity music hall in Norfolk, Connecticut. And he played maybe five songs off of his upcoming album and then lots of stuff that, um, from his, uh, previously popular stuff. And I, I loved it. So, uh, he's got an album coming out in three months called Ledger Domain. Again, his name is Duncan Sheik. I suspect that it may be a giant hit from a couple of the songs that I've heard. So I'm gonna I'm gonna predict it now and recommend that people uh, start listening to Duncan Sheik because I think he may he may be Grammy bound for next year. I'm awake afternoon. I fell asleep in the living room. It's one of those moments. Everything is so clear Before the truth goes back into hiding I want to decide Cause it's worth deciding To work on finding Something more than this fear It takes so much out of me To pretend Tell me now, tell me how to make amends Maybe I need to see the daylight Leave behind the half life. Don't you see I'm breaking down Oh lately, some hair don't feel Wow, cool. Yeah, I have no idea what that song was. I mean, I might have heard it in the radio, but uh, from the title, I don't know. Yeah, you're not going to bait me into singing it. I thought about it. (laughs) But it's, uh, yeah, it's great. He's he's great. And uh, especially if you like kind of melancholy music, it's, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, he's excellent. Yeah, I think I think uh, it's a it's it's a good point that you made there the, about uh, when the sadder music tends to maybe not sell as well as the happy music. I there's that, that great there's that great Cake song. Do you know the band Cake? No, one of their uh, semi popular songs. Not one of their hits, but uh, the title of it is "Sad Songs and Waltzes Aren't Selling This Year." <laughs> <laughs> and it's a it's. A, it's a waltz, actually. It's like set to a waltz beat, and the oh, wow. it, the guy is is lamenting how um, 
he's not making any money because sad songs and waltzes aren't selling. And it's, uh, it's hilarious. <laughs> Anyways, nice. probably some food to it. Uh, yeah. So my music pick is, 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 is basically, yeah. So it's a, it's a track called, uh, limb by limb. It's, uh, produced by, by a producer group, I guess, or maybe it's just one producer called fireworks. It's, um, it, they're from the UK, and it features a couple of uh, MCs like um, uh, Bounty Killer. Well, Bounty Killer is a Jamaican. They call them DJs in Jamaica. Uh, he's a DJ, so to speak. so he's not he's not he's not playing records. But in in Jamaica, the the guys that um, I don't know are you familiar with the with the genre called dancehall that comes from yes. Jamaica? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, so so those guys who do basically do the rapping so to speak on the dancehall tracks they're called djs over there hmm. uh i guess it comes out of the the sound system culture where because th- that role of the dj evolved from actually a person spinning records and then also shouting on the mic somehow and then that kind of evolved to being more the sort of like singer rapper kind of guy and those guys still have the the name dj so 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 bounty killers on there then then some some uk rappers and um uh it's it's an older track uh some years old i have no idea but um it's really super high energy i think the genre would be called dubstep i guess i'm i'm never so sure with the genres i'm not that deep (laughs) into all that stuff uh there's too many also and um and yeah, it's it's basically what they do is they they took an, an old track which was uh, limb by limb by by a guy called Katyrangs, um, an old uh, Jamaican dancehall track, and they took the chorus and they kind of cut it up and chopped it up in 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 their chorus and put a super high energy electronic instrumental underneath it, then ha- have those other guys rap over it, and it's one of my, it's just one. Um, I'm pulling this one out this time because it's just uh, in general one of the tracks that I, I enjoy very much, and uh, yeah, and there's a nice video which I'm gonna link link up in the show notes as well, and uh, that's my music pick. <laughs> We used to wear black shirt and Bali. Take trip from New York back to Cali. Me Sirani and me Bridgin Wally and the street Puerto Rican got them repeating like Dali. Find this red white from Napa Valley. Party and the town like it's a grand finale. Hundred yards no deal with Bali. We used to play. Let me know sometime monopoly. And show dice in the alley. Each chicken back, but everybody jolly. But something changed eventually. Man started them and I pushed out one Charlie. Well, people they kill you can't tell it. And them kill the vibes automatically. But no killer and Sirani go rally tell the girl them record, record, Limb, limb by limb. Limb by limb. Yeah. Uh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, where can the the listeners find find out more about you on the web, or contact you? I like Twitter, so I'm just gonna go with Twitter. Um, cool. I'm barely known on Twitter, so people can find me there. <laughs> Perfect. Um, 
Good. Well, I, I want to thank everybody for listening. You can find all the show notes uh, for this episode on descriptive.audio slash episodes slash 11. If you have any feedback or guest requests, hit me up on the Twitter at DescriptivePod or use the feedback form on the website. Um, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs>